Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Peter Whitehead from PF Whitehead Logistics. That's a company based in Croydon which offers bespoke services in warehousing, third-party contract logistics and pallet distribution, as well as special specialising in outsourced total transport solutions. Peter, welcome to the programme, and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thanks very much, Scott. Thanks ever so much um, for your time in uh, coming on and speaking with us, Peter. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to really gather your take on the topic of leadership. So if we dive straight into that, what does that word leader actually mean to you first and foremost? Oh, okay, so that's a, that's a good question. Um, yeah, for me, it's all about uh, it's all about clarity, really. Um, for my business, having a having a vision of of what service we we are offering, where we want to be going as a business, um, the quality of service that we want to be offering to our customers, um, and then leadership amongst uh, amongst my team to have a to build a really a really strong team um, and to get everyone on board with. With the vision and the qualities that uh, that we want to give to to our customers, so um, yeah, I think I think a, a good sort of clarity of, of where you're going and uh, bringing bringing everyone along with you, um, so your your staff and your customers buy into um, into what what into what you're offering. Absolutely right. Being able to take people with you is hugely important. Getting people to buy into the vision, as you say, you there. Um, so. How do you actually go about getting people to get on board with that yourself? How would you describe your own leadership style in that sense? Well, I um, look. I, I came into the business. I'm second generation. My father started it, and and I always wanted to come into the business. So, to give you as brief an answer as possible, I I came in straight in from school and and started working in the warehouse and got my truck license and my HDV and drove the trucks. So. So to lead the business, I, I've learned quite a lot on my feet, um, and 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 I love it. And I, but I work very closely with. I, I I talk very much with our customers and and listen to them. And and so I don't try. And, it's very easy to fall into your own bubble of your own world. So um, you know, I find some good people that I that I bounce off and listen to and and and, and inspire me to to uh, to always look to to take our business to to improve our business. So we're not just Looking at other transport companies, but other businesses around to to, to, to look at what they're doing and and to build that culture, um, and 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 that's what I enjoy, um, and that's what that's what's able to, to to keep us growing and keep us that ambition to um to 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 keep developing, to keep wanting to be better. Um, so yeah, I never never wanted to never sit on my laurels. That's for sure. Mm. You mentioned culture there, uh, Peter, being of huge importance, and I can certainly see where you're uh, coming from in that sense. But of course, to develop a certain culture within a business, um, a lot of that also depends on who you bring into the uh, the business as well. So when it comes to the recruitment side of things, what sort of people are you essentially looking for uh, when it comes to thinking about that culture and considering building that up? Um, yeah, we we try to promote very much within um which works very well for us being being in the logistics world it's uh it's quite a small pool of people it's 
it, it, to, to try and attract people into the industry, it's, it's, it's challenging. Um, so we, uh, it works very well to bring people in, um, to bring people in and develop them up. Um, and then, and then we're always, we're always, we're always looking, we're always, we're always looking for people that, that can come in that can, that can improve us. Um, so it's, it's, it's a dual aspect. Um, we, our, our staff retention is very, very good. And, and our record for developing staff, um, within the business is, is very, very good as well. Um, so we not, we not only get good staff, we keep them. Um, and that builds a, a loyalty and, and it builds a strength in our culture. Um, and then, and then that puts us in a nice position that as we grow and as we add people to, to our organization, um, we can just find the, the right quality that, that, that want to build into what we've got. But uh, it's, it's nice to bring in some people from, from who come from much larger companies that, that have a bigger, that, that, that have a bigger viewpoint than, 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 a, than just a, just a, a, a local business. Um, so that helps. So. So yeah, that's 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 how we that's how we try and mold mold our mold our team together. It's quite interesting that you mentioned two words there: development and uh, growth, Peter. If we focus on uh, that just uh, for a moment, do you think that essentially it's a constant process of development, even when we're leaders in a way that we're constantly having new experiences, learning new things, and really we can't hope to develop without that. Um, for me personally, yes. Um, I, I yeah, I'm, I'm I'm always looking. <clears throat> I'm always looking to grow. I'm always looking to, but to but to grow responsibly and sustainably. Um, and and so so yeah, so that so so that is, that is important for me. Um, and uh, and and so to, to bounce off knowledgeable people, um, whether it's talking to customers. Being involved in the in the in the bigger world of, of transport and and of and of and of business, um, I, I, I find so so helpful. There's there's so many good people when you when you get out and network and and people that will give you the time and and, and will listen to where you're at and and you just pick up just golden nuggets of advice as, as you go along and uh, and you, you take it back to your business and and constantly throwing new things at the team and new ideas. Um, and they don't always work, but if everyone's on board and, and, and willing to, to give it to give it a go, you, you you tend to look back afterwards and and uh, and that, that keeps a smile on people's face because it keeps us all on our toes. So that's uh, that's, a, that's the sort of culture that we that we that we're working hard at. There are a couple of very, very important points there, actually, uh, Peter. The first of those being, of course, bouncing off other people. I think from a leadership perspective, it's important to remember, isn't it, that you're not on your own. There are other people there that you can essentially learn from. You can surround yourself with mentors, good people. Indeed, Nelson Mandela himself once said, surround yourself with people who are better than you, in fact, in order to bring out the best in yourself, as well as bring out the best in those around you as their leader. But also as well... Um, you mentioned this idea of maybe being willing to try one or two things um, as well. And maybe in that process, you don't necessarily get all of them right. But for the ones that you do get wrong, you can embrace that as a learning experience. And that's all part of that development that we've already talked about as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, and I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm very encouraging with, with, with my team um, and everyone within my business to, 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 to give feedback um, and it's and it's 
and it's great because you know, some of the some of the best feedback we get come from come from my come from my guys on the on the loading bays come from my guys driving the trucks and and you know and, and so we try and encourage that everyone's got a voice um and 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 to give feedback and we take that on board and and, and we listen and, and we try things and uh and largely they work and and you know we we give the right credit throughout throughout the business throughout the team um and and that that again that all builds that 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 culture of people want to be listened to and uh and it's great. I, I certainly don't know everything, um, but if I listen to the right people and listen to them enough uh, and weigh everything up, then then we'll largely we'll get we'll get stuff right. And we put that back to our customers as well. And we we go back to them and and we constantly sort of have communication and and throw different ideas at, at them and and they like that as well. You know, we're not just we're not just there in the completely in the background doing our stuff. We like to be sort of vocal and talking to them mm. and giving new ideas and uh and 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 that works very well that builds a, a, a strength um which is which is important it does i think that humility and getting on a level with those around you is um, of huge importance and also as you're doing there encouraging others to take on their own leadership as well of course to communicate ideas because it is very much the case that it doesn't take figureheads to be inspiring anybody can be inspiring and anybody can have a fantastic idea and it's about as a leader injecting them with the confidence to really voice those isn't it yeah it really is it really is um you know, we're we're you know, I like to feel that we're a family business and I like to feel that everyone within my business we're we're all in this together. Um and if we can improve we grow stronger. We grow stronger as a business. Um and that that creates a, a stronger a stronger environment to to give everyone comfort for, for the future and um it's definitely, you know, that strength and that togetherness is 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 getting us through um, through through these times. So so uh, I, I'm definitely sensing the benefit for that. Mm. And if we do mention these times, um, of course, um, very very difficult times uh, for business navigating COVID nineteen and different business leaders having to really feel their way through this uh, pandemic. Um, of course, you're involved in logistics, so part of the business at least will have been carrying on um, as normal to a degree but have you had to really sort of adapt um, in terms of being able to meet this uh, period because I can certainly imagine it's taken uh, some adjustments yeah it really has it really has that uh, you know for me it's it, there's really three phases to it it's the way I kind of kind of see it you know the first phase was was the approach of COVID um, and preparing ourselves and and, and and many of you know, I, I don't think any of us were, were, were could be prepared for something that we've never experienced before in our lifetime. Um, but but I talked to we we work with some huge worldwide logistics companies, so I was I was bouncing off them, talking to them because they were you know they were really getting geared up a lot earlier um, through their worldwide networks than than we were in this country. So I was listening to them about how they were already prepared for how they were going to get staff working from home um, where possible, how they were bringing in hygiene measures. So we were, we were ahead of the curve already. And I was talking to my customers about some of the things we were getting in place. And, and, and it was great because they were really, they were starting to adapt that within their business. So, so that was really positive. Um, and, and so we could, uh, so we could be as ready as we could. And then, once, once we went into lockdown phase two, it was right. What businesses are open? What businesses are closed? 
what staff we can furlough, which has which has been hugely uh, important. Uh, and then working out with our staff with who's got underlying health conditions, who within their family, how do we find the right ones to to, to stand down? And 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 again, the, the team were brilliant. You know, the ones who who needed to, the ones that were really prepared to carry on working. So we we, we got through that and. Um, we probably lost about fifty percent of our business, um, so so we could we could cut back. Um, so that that worked that that worked the treat. Um, and then so that was all settling down, um, working really really well. And then um, one of my one of my one of my night managers um, or my my overall night manager, he had gone off sick just before the COVID. Uh, break out of a, of a total different illness, um, but then, but then his illness got worse, and we suddenly he suddenly passed away. He he he, he contracted COVID, passed away, and that sent absolute shockwaves throughout the business. We are a family business, and we're a tight knit group. Huge amounts of anxiety, um, especially for the drivers still working, still going out um, on the road. Um, but it, but again, we you know I was very very close with everyone, addressing their concerns. And it, you know, everyone pulled together and like, nope, we're gonna, we're happy, we're gonna get on with this, and we're gonna, we're gonna make this work. Um, so, uh, so we've 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 come through that, and we're our other customers are starting to come back on board, and we're bringing guys back into work who are now ready to come back and feel happy. Um, so, so yeah, so you know, and, and the next thing will be phase three, which is the complete unknown of what the picture is going to look like on the other side, but. You know, we've 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 had some good years. We've 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 kept ourselves a, a, a nice sort of buffer. We we run with with almost zero debt. So so we we and we've got a very very good team behind us. Um, and we're talking to our customers, and you know, they some are very nervous about what the future holds, and some are are a bit more confident. So it's going to be a changing world. But I think we're. I think we're 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 ready for we're we're ready to take on what the what the future holds for us. Mm, certainly seems uh, the uh, the case, Peter. And um, for when we do move through this uh, pandemic and we do get to uh, the other side and see that light at the end of the tunnel, what do you envision um, for the business, and what will you be trying to pursue? Well, that's the million dollar question, um, and uh, I don't have a simple answer for that. All, all I know is that I'm I'm excited by the challenge. We, when I came into the business um, as a 19-year-old, the, uh, our style of business is very, very different to what it is now. There was an awful lot of manufacturing in the southeast, and, and we, our business relied very much on storing and delivering those goods. Well, that manufacturing has, has all left the southeast, so we've we've had to we've we've had to change the style of our business massively and keep um, keep innovating new ideas and new directions to take the business to carry on growing. Um, so we've been very adaptable over the years and uh, I'm, I'm quite excited what the new challenges are. It's, it, it, it's it, you know, I, I don't think we're going to, I don't think we're going to bounce back so quickly um, uh, as, a, as a nation. But, but, but I, I, I see some good signs. I think the country is pulled together really well. So it's going to be different, and it's going to be a different place for us. Um, but that's all going to be to, to have a look at, at, at what's out there and, and what direction we can we can take take ourselves in take ourselves in next. So 
that's 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 a new challenge for for, for a new day. But but I'm excited. I'm excited for that. Bring it on. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly the right attitude, uh, Peter. Bring it on, whatever that changing market environment might look like. And I think from a listener's perspective, um, after um, how you've spoken today, I think it would actually be fantastic uh, to perhaps have you back on the programme in the uh, the next year or so when we start seeing these changes come to fruition and we can catch up on how the uh, the business is getting on as well. Um, it's a shame that we're just about out of time on today's uh, programme, so we can't discuss that further. But thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on to the programme, Peter. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you and also a really informative experience as well oh scott thank you for the invite and thank you for the time it's been uh, yeah it's been nice talking thank you very much likewise peter and do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on as well all right thank you Thank you. That was Peter Whitehead of PF Whitehead Logistics. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to my colleague Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Uh, Sir Andrew is currently the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board, having previously been England captain. He is one of only three England captains, in fact, who have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, but also... He is the England captain with the second highest number of test victories under his belt in history. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know... And you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Tresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> Um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Rescothi who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So 
it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role. You know, just in terms of... Because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in 
in seeing England win at something, we're all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch. Uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm -hmm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, 
But th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so, I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it very different 
challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you. To explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively 
how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but 
in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.